When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. another episode of the good music podcast i'm lucas and i'm grant and let me tell you what i'm excited for this episode why because it's someone's first episode we're so glad you're here lucas was probably confused there for a second i got my tea in front of me i'm ready to talk about some good music if you like what you hear consider subscribing consider leaving a like leave a review maybe it helps the algorithms to get our podcast out to new people so more people can get exposed to good music. If you're a particularly good fan, or I should say a particularly strong fan of good music, and you want to get in on the conversation about this podcast, go to Facebook and Instagram at Good Music Podcast. Those are our pages where we post things about what episodes are coming up. Maybe we'll do special announcements, and you can just get in on the conversation with other fans of good music. If you really love the podcast and you really want to support us, down in the description, there's a link to a Patreon page where you can give us a couple dollars a month, and in return, we will give you exclusive access to early content and exclusive content just for you guys, just for you patrons. We really appreciate all of our patrons, and we hope that we see you there on our patron list soon. Um, and last week, we talked about... Who did we even talk about? I completely forgot. Oh, it was Carcass. About Carcass. Oh, we talked about Carcass. How could Carcass. you forget that? How could I forget? I, I don't know how, because after that, I... I told you oh i'm gonna listen to surgical steel and i did and like it was it was good the album itself didn't challenge any of my thoughts about music like this was all stuff that i had heard before but i really i really really enjoyed it and it was it was good to hear kind of some thrashy heavy stuff again that i never heard before um so i really like that so if that kind of piques your interest then check out our previous episode on Carcass. I don't know if they moved up to an eight for me, but they solidified their spot at a seven. That that music, that extra listening that I do, it has to really has to really really change how I see music, like uh, Origin of Symmetry did for me to move up to an eight just on the yeah. But well, I mean that's the purpose of our episodes is to get you to take that next step. It would we would not be successful if you listen to the six songs and then decided that's all I'm going to hear from them. We want you, the the six songs is merely just your gateway. Perhaps if you notice that there are songs from a particular record that you enjoyed more in the set than others, then that should guide you to go, hey, I'm going to check out maybe this record first. Or um, that that's, that's kind of what we're trying to do is to 
is to get you to explore more and dive deeper because, you know, even if we do multiple episodes, it'll never cover as much as if you were to just uh, listen to the albums yourself and to discover the deep cuts and um, to find all the stuff that you really love. So I'm glad that your opinions are changing after listening to more. My My opinions are changing. Well, not on Carcass, maybe. <laughs> but hey, it doesn't have to every time. It's true. It Sometimes have... it can. It doesn't even have to. It can just reinforce rather than than change. I I think that's what's going to happen with this episode. I don't think I'm going to gain very much because all these songs I know, some of them I love so much. So, oh yeah. Who are we talking about, Lucas? We're talking about. America's band, Leonard Skinner. America's band. <laughs> I mean, they they really are. And um, this is uh, our fan-selected episode for the month. We do this once a month, or at least most times. We try and have an episode that's picked by one of our listeners. Um, this is one sent to us by Collinwood15, who is one of our biggest fans. So thank you so much, Colin, for continuing to listen to us and to support us. You've been bugging me for a while to do Leonard Skinner. And I will say that a couple times earlier this year, I had planned to do it. And for whatever reason, the schedule changed. But I knew that I had to do it. And I mean, just also Leonard Skinner is just one of those bands you have to do an episode on. Right. I would say that we're overdue in talking about them and that of all the artists we haven't talked about as far as like rock and roll, this is one of the biggest ones that has had yet to get an episode. Yeah. Uh, the, the only the only other like huge ones I can think of are like maybe Guns N' Roses or Def Leppard uh, or some of some of those other maybe 80s arena bands mm-hmm. um i felt like we i feel like we've done pretty good on 70s maybe stuff like uh uh foreigner uh we haven't really touched punk at all and that's something that's on my short list but there's some pretty huge bands there like the clash and the ramones and uh that we haven't gotten to talk about yet mm-hmm. but i would say leonard skinner is one of the biggest bands yet that we have not talked about so um, I'm really excited about it. Let's go ahead and just jump into our first thoughts. So, yeah. Grant, you kind of revealed a little bit that you have some you have some experience with Skinner. So, yes. where do, where do you stand starting off? So, obviously, the big songs, right? Sweet Home Alabama, Simple Man, Freebird, obviously. Uh, Give me three steps, kind of. Um, I've only listened to that one a couple times, but it's not one of my personal favorite songs. But Freebird, obviously, should be everyone's, you know, one of everyone's personal favorite songs. Oh, yeah, especially uh, if you're a guitar player. Oh, yeah, well, and it's not it's not the guitar solo that, that gets me. It's the whole feel of it. Like, the, the technicality, well, we'll talk about that later. But anyway, <laughs> um, it, it as a band, right, I don't know so much about them. But I do remember, like, was properly introduced to their music. And that was in high school when, um, like, Freebird was on the radio. 
and uh, I was right into basketball practice with one of my friends and he had just had the radio on he's like oh yeah this song's like nine minutes I feel like you would like it you like guitar and um so we like listened to the back half of it I'm like oh that's pretty good that's pretty good and I didn't listen to it again until later and uh I heard the whole first half of the song I'm like oh man these lyrics are so simple but they're so good uh, and so that that kind of became the the anthem of the uh of the guys in our class in high school that we would play that song out of Trenton's truck going down the highway you know <laughs> full volume and we all knew the words and sang along every time we did the air guitar and everything so that's kind of like that's one of my uh fondest memories of high school and music and Leonard Skinner and and but that's kind of where it stops um I mean, obviously, Sweet Home Alabama, everybody knows. Most people who know the name Leonard Skinner are familiar with Simple Man. Um, uh, but I'd have to say, just because of how much I love those three combined, and especially how much I love Freebird. Um, and I ask my dad all the time to put Freebird on our cover band playlist, but we're not there yet. Um I have to put them no lower than a seven, even though okay. I don't have that back catalog. It's just the catalog that I have is so strong that I have to start at a seven. Yeah, but still, that's one of the higher um, starting points that you've uh, yeah uh, that you've had going into an episode, right? But but even on the other end, I don't know a lot of facts about them. I don't know the lineup. I don't know the history. I really couldn't even place what part of the 70s, I assume, they're in. So, I don't know. <laughs> we'll, get to, we'll get to learn some of the story. I will get to learn a lot this episode still. So, Lucas. All right. Um, so, I mean, I feel like everybody's first experience with Skinnerd is probably pretty the same. Uh, now, I had heard Sweet Home Alabama many, many times before I realized who they were because um, I was born in Alabama. That was pretty much our state song. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So, um, you know, that was just one of those songs that when you live in Alabama, <laughs> you hear 24-7. And... Uh, but for a long time, that was the only song of theirs that I knew. And then I remember my dad showed me pretty soon after he had given me the famous iPod. And he was kind of just showing me some more stuff. He was just like, have you ever heard Freebird? <laughs> I was like, no. And he was like, it's by the same guys that do Sweet Home Alabama. Um, and it's got a crazy guitar solo. And so I was like, okay. So we listened to it. And I remember going, whoa, okay, that was pretty cool. But it, like, didn't leave a huge impression on me. And at the time, I believe that I had my first Guitar Hero game. I think it was Guitar it – well, I know it was Guitar Hero 2. I can't remember if I had it when I first heard Freebird. But I know I hadn't finished the game. Because when you get to the very end of that game, the big ending challenge is you have to play Freebird. <laughs> and I remember – getting to the end of the game and seeing that I had to play it and going, 
oh, I remember this song being really hard. And the song just like annihilated me when I tried it. Hmm. And that was kind of when my, I, I kind of gleaned that respect for Freebird and for Skinner in particular going, okay, this is a, this is a guitar centric band. Yeah. Like this is, this is their thing is that they've, you're expect the great guitar solos. Yeah. It seems like the, uh, the iPod and guitar hero have influenced all of your musical decisions. Well, they happened at almost the exact same time. Um, I would say I got Guitar Hero maybe like a couple months after I got the iPod. So the iPod was music that I was being told to listen to, while Guitar Hero was my avenue of kind of finding my own style. Because, I mean, Guitar Hero is pretty much what introduced me to all my favorite, like, rock and roll and heavy metal and prog bands. Mm-hmm. And so, I putting those two things together, that was the year that essentially shaped my my listening tastes. So, yeah, pretty important. But, yeah, so that's kind of where my, my, my knowledge and relationship with Skinner began, I would say, was after playing Freebird on Guitar Hero. Mm-hmm. Um, that was when I was just like, okay, I want to I listen to some more. And so, um, and just hearing them on the radio all the time, I felt like I got to know a good amount of their big hits. Mm-hmm. Hearing songs like What's Your Name and uh, and Tuesday's Gone and mm-hmm. and all those uh, all those great songs was kind of just I knew I I've I've known the hits and I I had listened to their f- debut album in its entirety one time but so my my but going into this like I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of the big Skinner songs I didn't really know much about their story obviously I knew about the plane crash and um and a couple of the band members but their story was a pretty big unknown to me um i hadn't really listened to a lot of their deep cuts so i would say i would say a 7 is also probably where i was coming in as well like they're like the the big skinner songs i really loved and but I hadn't I had never dug deep into them before, so I would say that we were both starting off at about the same place. Okay, so I didn't know there was a plane crash. Oh, then this is, is that, gonna be a is this is gonna be a great episode. Then is this early or late into the story? Um, depends on what you consider to be late. Okay, <laughs> I mean, okay, well, let's, let's start at the beginning, and I guess we'll get there. Okay, so the ideal. Skinner lineup is going to have seven members. It's they're one of the bigger rock and roll lineups. Wow! Because they uh, had a triple guitar. Ooh! Lineup. Triple guitar and a pianist. And a pianist and a singer that didn't play any instrument. I guess the pianist also did organ. Yeah. Uh huh. He was the keyboard. We'll call him the keyboardist because we'll that, that's that's a bit better of an umbrella term. Sure, true. It's true. Uh, um, so they were based out of Jacksonville, Florida, um, which a lot of people don't consider Florida the South, but if you're in the panhandle, it's pretty much the South. 
once you get down pat and I, I say this from experience because I also lived in Orlando for a little bit. Once you get down past the panhandle, you're kind of in a unique area of the United States that's not like anything else. Mm-hmm. It's this it's this very interesting just like mix of everything. But in the in the panhandle part of Florida, that's that's very similar to the rest of the deep south. So they they definitely are proud southern boys. Um, the undisputed leader of Leonard Skinner was the singer Ronnie Van Zant. He was, and and this is not historians piecing together through observation. Like every single band member, without a doubt, will say that the heart and soul of Skinner is Ronnie Van Zant. Like they, there's never in Skinner's history been a um, a fight about who's in charge. They all, all the band recognized that Ronnie is the guy that's guiding the ship. He's the one that mm-hmm. brought them together. He was the one that pushed them to work hard, to practice harder than everyone else. He was the one that, that convinced them that they need to give the band their everything and abandon all other uh, endeavors. Oh, thank goodness he was right. <laughs> he was the main lyricist. So all of the, all of the great centered Skinner songs were, were put together by him. He was the arranger. He was the producer. Um, and he was, I, I heard someone say that, um, that guitarist, uh, Steve Gaines was the heart of of Skinner, but Ronnie was the soul. The soul. Yeah. And I mean, just every direction that Skinner went in was Ronnie led. So he's the if he if he decides it's done, it's done guy. And I guess that's what happened in the end. Well, we'll get to that. Oh, um so so you've got ronnie then you've got um we've got our three guitar players now it hasn't been the same three guitar players there were there were you would say two core guitar players um the two guitar players that play the solo for freebird which is gary rossington and alan collins and then there was there were two different vital third guitar players, and they both actually felt filled a very specific role in the band, kind of almost the second leader. Um, mm-hmm. The first one was Ed King, and then the second one was Steve Gaines. Um, okay. Gary and Alan were they did what they needed to do the great guitar players but they weren't particularly huge songwriters although of course with exception they also tended to be a bit more by the numbers as far as the way that they composed where both of these third guitar players were like were what ronnie would describe as his inspiration his muse kind of like the person that would bring the spark of the idea and then Ronnie would go, yes, this is it. Let's work on this. Ah, oh, okay. So, because like Ed King, he was the guy that pretty much 
single-handedly put together Sweet Home Alabama. Um, I mean, just a incredible guitar player. And then Steve Gaines, like pretty much all of Street Survival, like his brainchild as musically. He wow. he invigorated them at a time when they were kind of at a low point. Mm-hmm. So, um, so they each of those each of those two third guitar players they they were leaders in a way in the fact that they musically and creatively were leaders in the band okay so if that makes sense again it's three guitar play but so that's kind of yeah ideally skinnerd is at its best when there's three guitar players. There have been times where they've had two, but mm-hmm. that's like the classic idea is Skinner is a three guitar attack. And I would say the best band that has ever attempted a tri guitar um, lineup. Ooh. I mean, uh, as- you're saying this as an Iron Maiden fan. Well, mainly because Iron Maiden didn't write the bulk of their classic material with three guitar players. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. Um, they're, they obviously are great with three, and they've made some incredible music with three guitar players, but um, I would say that modern-day Maiden is not as strong as classic skip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. <laughs> All the modern maiden is great. I think they're one of the best career. Their late career stuff has been pretty great. I I think you're in the minority on that one, but ah no, I would not believe that I'm in the minority. Um, That's a pretty well uh, circulated fact. Is that maiden has? I mean, obviously they're not going to be as good as classic. No band usually ever is, but. For being later in their career, they're they're putting out some pretty incredible stuff. Although I will admit, the newest album is not my favorite. Yeah, that's what that's what I was referencing. Oh, but go go listen to Book of Souls. Book of Souls. Okay. Okay. Fine. <laughs> but that's a that's a rant for a different episode. That's another episode. Yeah. Um. So. Ronnie, you've got Gary, Alan, and then either Ed or Steve on guitar. One of the hardest parts of researching this episode was just learning who everyone was. Mm-hmm. When you've got a seven-piece band that is constantly fluctuating, remembering who everyone was was, was quite the challenge. Yeah. Um, next, we have keyboard player Billy Powell. And as far as classic lineup, he was their only keyboard player. Uh, You've got bassist Leon Wilkerson. Okay. And then as in the classic era, we've had, we had two different drummers. The first drummer was Bob Burns and the second drummer was Artemis Pyle, which how about that for a name? That's That's a pretty good name. Artemis Pyle. Now I'm. I know that Artemis wasn't his birth name. That was just his stage name. But still, even yeah, he he picked a good one. Yeah. So um, there's your. Those are all the people that make up the members that played in the classic Skinner 
lineup. The uh, the beginning. Yes. So um, so they got together as a band very early in their lives, like when they were like 16, 17 years old. Oh, wow. Now, of course, not all those members met at the same time, but the core being um, Ronnie, Gary, Alan, uh, Leon, and Bob. Mm-hmm. So those were all – they all knew each other from growing up and – hanging out with each other in Jacksonville and we're just like, Hey, we're going to put a band together and we're going to make this work. So their first album came out in 73 and Holy crap. What an incredible first record. Really? Yeah. Wow. Just listen to this. That alone had give me three steps, simple man, Tuesday's gone and Freebird on it. Oh my! Wait. So, how old were they when they did this? Um, they were, I believe, like twenty three, twenty four. It took them a while to get their first record. Oh, because they got to find the other two guys. Well, the biggest thing being constantly um, shopping their record around because they did a lot of recording sessions before the official one that laid down that first record, uh. and made a lot of demos. Well, it worked out. Yeah, and I mean, this that first record was a result of having a lot of time to craft and perfect a record. I mean, they some of those songs dated back to the late 60s. And wow. just and just them constantly perfecting it. Ronnie Van Zant was a extreme perfectionist. Like when they were in rehearsals, he was like, if you don't play everything exactly the same as you played it before, then we're going to start over and do it again. Wow. Note for note. Solos and everything. Band director level of... Yeah. Well, he was the band director. <laughs> if, you, if you came in hungover, if you came in high or drunk, um, I mean... It wasn't just that he was going to yell at you. Ronnie was a fighter. He would just, he would deck you down to the ground. Wow. And that got him in a lot of trouble as, as he got older, but he was also one of the toughest dudes around. Like he was, he was known as one of the few people in Jacksonville that you would never want to get in a fight with because he would win. Not just because he was strong and tough, but he also did not fight fair. Okay, that's interesting. He would do whatever it took to one. I got I got to look at a uh, a picture of. Is he like a big, big like Arnold type? No, I mean, I mean, he looks sturdy. Mm-hmm. He's not. He's not a you know just like a skinny guy that's you know just wiry. But I would say he wasn't muscular. Yeah, I've seen him. I've seen pictures of him before. Yeah, but he just he looks he looks like someone you that's got rock hard fists. Yeah, he he gives off a very uh, Anselmo kind of kind of vibe. Yet, whenever he was not in that mood, or whenever he wasn't drunk, he was always known as one of the nicest guys you would ever meet. 
the duality of man. Mm-hmm. It just if when it came to music, and of course, whenever he got drunk, he got very, very mean. <laughs> but he was just he was a no nonsense guy that not only fought because he had to, but also because he liked to. Sometimes he would just start fights with people for no reason, just to see if he could win. And he usually did. Wow, that that will get you in some trouble. Now, because of that, the whole band had a a penchant for fighting. Um, especially once the alcohol really took over them after they got famous. That was kind of their their main vice was the alcohol. There were there were other drugs associated with that, cocaine, quaaludes, heroin, all the things that that rock stars did in uh, the 70s. But alcohol was the main one, was the main thing that got them. There, There's a reason why whiskey is one of the words you'll find most often in a Leonard Skinner song. <laughs> It was it was amazing listening through their discography and just hearing the amount of times that they say whiskey. Oh boy. Yeah. That's that was definitely what they what they liked. Um so there is a bit of an interesting um lineup issue on the first record. So Leon Wilkinson is the official bass player of Leonard Skinnerd, but he actually played very little bass on the first album because it was during a period where he was out of the band. And okay. the person that actually played bass for most of the first record was Ed King. And there was it was actually a two guitar approach with Ed King on bass. Okay. And then afterwards, Ed King transitioned to being the third guitar player because they were like, we want to have Leon back. Um, it was during a period where they questioned his loyalty to the band, whether he was going to, you know, have make time for them. Mm -hmm. um, he had had some commitment issues where he had like missed a couple shows due to uh, something or another. And so Ronnie was just like, fine, you're out then if you're not going to be here what he did was that he didn't even tell him that he just went ahead and hired ed king and was just like if leon doesn't show up you're playing tonight and when leon didn't show up he was like congratulations you're our new bass player <laughs> and just, to work it out and colin was just like hey sorry about you but you didn't show up so but then they realized that things just didn't sound as good without leon but they also wanted to keep Ed, so they were just like, here, Ed, you play guitar. That's your first instrument anyway, and Leon comes back. And so um, and so that's kind of when we get to the second album, that's like the the first album to have the, the seven-man lineup officially. Even though all seven of them were on that first album cover, um, it wasn't necessarily all them playing in the roles that they would normally play. Well, okay, so you you said that there were two soloists on that first album. Yep. So is that just the two guitar players that were in the band? Yeah, they're not... None of them are rhythm players. They're all lead. Okay, I, I 
I thought that you had. I was under the impression that there was a rhythm and two. No, and even when they moved to three, all three of them were incredible solo players. Because if, like, if you listen on Freebird, there's actually two guitars soloing at the same time. Right, right. And it's not. It, I guess you could think that maybe it's overdubbed, but it's not. It's them playing together. Uh, Gary and Alan. Okay, that I didn't know. That's kind of cool. Yeah, you can you can you can hear it. Sometimes they're playing in unison, and other times they're both soloing something completely different together at the same time. And yeah, it's just those like are the cool parts. And it's just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so, uh, second helping was the was the first Skinnerd record to have that that lineup. And that was also the record that finally broke them big because Sweet Home Alabama ended up becoming a top 10 hit. Nice. Because the first record really didn't do that well, which is crazy to think because it's you look back on it and and more so than any of their other albums, it's got the most just like classic songs on it. Yeah, that is weird. But – just none of them were a hit. And that's understandable because the big songs off that album are not radio length. Mm-hmm. They're more, you know, like more FM album rock live favorites. Yeah. Um, Sweet Home Alabama was their first hit. And that was what helped push them up into that upper level and then as soon as that got big everyone started going back and picking up the first record and that pushed it to being a huge record as well and it was actually after the second record came out that Freebird kind of became the iconic song that it was Ooh, interesting okay so um, so after that of course the album hits huge and the label all of a sudden is just like, oh my gosh, guys, you did it. You've hit it big. Get us another record as soon as possible. And so they, for the first time, because even for the second record, they had mostly written and recorded it before the first album even came out. One of the oh, wow. surprising things about Sweet Home Alabama is that it was completely done before the first album was released. And they just, of course, when you're, you know, it took them so long to get a first record deal. They, they had a very healthy catalog of songs. Mm-hmm. So for the third record, that was their first time kind of going in and just going, we don't really have a whole lot. And they they made most of it up in the studio. So the third record was called Nothing Fancy. And uh, was it, it ended up... Fancy? It's a pretty good record, although it is weaker than the first two. But it's still really good. Um, Just, again, Ronnie was able to just... He had that instinct of just knowing what songs to focus on, what songs not to waste time on. And and they were just able to crank it out like in two weeks. Going into it, not really having much written. They only had like one song recorded beforehand because they had made it for a movie. Uh, Saturday Night Special was on the movie The Longest Yard. 
And mm-hmm. so they had that done, but then they were for us, they were like, I don't know, let's just go in and see what happens. Oh, by the way, we only have two weeks to finish it. Whoa. So they just they went in and they said they were working uh eighteen hour days. That does not sound fun. They said that you would think it wouldn't be, but the creative energy was so high that it was just they were like, imagine how great that album would have been had we had more time to work on it. So it was like, I guess that's a good point. Like 18 hours, spending 18 hours a day doing what you love with the people you love. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, six hours of sleep. Oof. Yeah. But at that time, they were really starting to not like each other very much. Oh. So this is when the alcohol really seeps into the band. And of course, because they're natural fighters anyway, the thing that they do when they get drunk is they fight with each other. We're, we're, uh, like fists? Fists, oh yes. Like, just knockdown brawls. Oh, that's there was one expensive in a studio. Well, yeah. Well, they didn't do it in the studio. Ronnie would not allow that to happen. But as soon as they were out of the studio... And once they were on the road, especially, I mean, it was all bets are off. They would fight on stage sometimes. And they would, like, leave mid-show, go hash things out backstage, and then come out and go, okay, we got it all out of us. Let's finish the show. Uh, There was one instance where Ronnie punched out Billy Powell, the keyboardist's four front teeth. Oh! With one blow. Oh! Uh, yeah, I I would like to be friends with Ronnie and only friends and never piss him off. He's bro- <laughs> He broke Gary Rossington's fingers one time in a fight <clears throat> where he had to play a show with just two fingers Mm-mm. on his fretting hand Mm-mm. as a soloist <laughs> playing some of the most difficult solos in classic rock. Um, I'm, I mean, just he... Especially the more he was drinking, the harder it was becoming to work with Ronnie because he was essentially drunk 24-7. So was he the leader because no one wanted to fight him? Well, and because he was the one that believed in the band the most. But that also, there was a fear of Ronnie, of just going, like, we need to do what Ronnie says or he's going (laughs) to let him have it. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, eventually Ed King was the one that that finally grew tired of it and said I'm out okay and um, he had left a bass from that he played on the first Skinnerd record and left it to Leon just as a hey here's a here's an extra bass for you and the first show that they did without Ed Ronnie instructed Leon to to smash it on stage. Mm, that is so sad. Yeah. And that just, again, shows the fear that everyone had of Ronnie of just, because Leon said he didn't want to do it, but he was just like, but I also didn't want to get the crap beaten out of me. So I did it, but I didn't feel right about it. That's sad. But it bothered Ronnie tremendously. Um, he, Why? Because he, Ed was a good friend of his, and he realized that he was the one that pushed him away. And 
that had he been better to him, that Ed would have stayed and he would have retained the person in the band that was that was the most musically inspiring to him. And so that's why their fourth record, Give Me Back My Bullets, is easily the worst of their classic period. It's not a bad record at all, but it just it lacks the truly great songs. And it's it was played as a six piece. Oh, and by this time, um, the third record, Nothing Fancy, was the uh, Bob Burns had left and Artemis Pyle had come in. But I guess there was no inciting incident of that. Yeah, there was. I just forgot to mention it. Uh, Bob Burns um, was in a car crash that killed another person, and it was while he was uh, drunk. Although he did not get jail time for it, he was able to get his way out of it somehow. Oh, but, he, was, he was driving was the big deal as well, I guess. Yeah. Um, but he had a lot of PTSD from that experience and started getting more into narcotics to help cope with it and started attacking crewmates and band members saying that he could see the devil in their eyes. Yeah, that's a little uh, much. Yeah, and so that's when they were like, "Okay, we gotta, we need to get rid of Bob. He's, he's, he might actually be losing his mind." Mm-hmm. So that's when Artemis Pyle came in. I think I think that would count. <laughs> so, yeah. "Give Me My Bullets" was recorded by six mm-hmm. members. So it was just two guitars, and you can just you can just feel and. And Ronnie even admitted that he made that album on autopilot, that he just he was so drained by all the fighting and all the struggling and the high pressure and the expectations now that Skinner was this huge band. Because even though Nothing Fancy wasn't as good as the first two records, it was their biggest selling up to that point. Okay. And so, like the you know, they were they were definitely not waning at the time the fourth record came out. They were at their biggest ever, and the normally the fights, not in this case not literal but figurative that Ronnie would have to make sure that the music was up to a certain standard. He did not do on "Give Me Back My Bullets." He because uh, he didn't want to push he, anyone else away. Well, no, he said that he was just tired. He felt he felt burnt out. He just he was just like I just felt so tired of having to be the person to make all of the decisions. And I just wanted someone else to do it. And so I just drifted on that album. Hmm. And that was kind of after that record came out, that was the period when Ronnie started to reevaluate kind of the life that he was living. Um, he had a daughter at that point and that really inspired him to just go. He also got arrested between like 73 and 76, like 12 times for fighting. Okay. Either so that might be a wake up call. Either fighting or public intoxication. And then a lot of times those two things were combined. 
And it so he just that's when is when he when he found out he was having a daughter, he was just like, I have got to clean up my act. I need to be a good role model. I need to um I just need to get my life together because I can't act like this and expect to be a good father. Mm-hmm. And then, so he started working on himself, and then Gary got in a very bad car crash, where he not only crashed into a tree, but then careened and crashed into the front of someone's house. Mm. And was in the hospital for a pretty decent amount of time. And that was when... Ronnie approached the rest because obviously the the reason he crashed was because he was very drunk. Um, That's when Ronnie just said, okay, it's not good enough just for me to get my act together. We as a band all have to figure this out or else we're going to die. Yeah. And not only that, even if we don't die, if we continue to do stuff like this, we're going to lose all respect and credibility as a band. Were he he knew that they were starting to get a bad reputation because all of these all of these horrible things were making the headlines. I mean, it must have succeeded because I never knew any of this. Well, I mean, time has buried a lot of that, but mm-hmm. it was it was pretty major at the time. Um. And so they all started – it wasn't a thing to where they were necessarily going for sobriety. Just they all were making decisions to the best that they could, and they were, they didn't always succeed at it. But trying to just – specifically trying to stop driving while intoxicated and um, just overall trying to just kick the alcohol and drugs. And so then that's when they got Steve Gaines on guitar from Oklahoma all the way up from Miami. Maybe the the most famous person from Miami. I don't know. I haven't fact-checked that, but... Spelled like Miami. Yeah. Pronounced correctly. And the funny thing is, is that everyone that's not from Oklahoma pronounces it Miami. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, uh, no, it's Miami. Yeah, we we had a... uh... Uh, when I was in middle school, we had a um, teacher from out of state, a math teacher from out of state, and there was some math competition up in Miami, Oklahoma. So he was telling, you know, some of the math students, oh, hey, if you do good on this exam, then you can go represent the school in Miami. So all the students were thinking, oh, my gosh, we're going to Florida. And of course, some of them qualify and then when they get to Miami, Oklahoma, they're like, this is not what I expected. <laughs> <laughs> so, I yeah. Knew what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Ronnie's wife has been on record saying that Steve Gaines may have been the best thing that ever happened to Ronnie. Oh. Just because it healed that wound that he had from Ed as well as it in a huge way reinvigorated his love for the band, his creativity um, that, 
and that Steve really became like his best friend. Good. And continued to help pull him out of his alcoholism. So there's there's the heart and the soul. Yep. And Steve Gaines is a monster guitar player. I would say that he is the best guitar player that's ever been in Skinnerd. I mean, he's got three other guys, three other really great guys. To I know that that is not a a light statement. Yeah. Uh, Ronnie typically did not shower a lot of open praise on his guitar players or any of his bandmates, but Steve was always the one that he went out of his way to say, man, he can really play. So that's when they make Street Survivors. They're this the the new the next album with this new lineup. And I would say that it's the contender with the first record for being their best album. Mm-hmm. Um, the the first album has more hits, but Street Survivors is I would say it's deeper because the deep cuts on. Uh, the debut are a bit forgettable where mm-hmm. even the deep cuts on Street Survivors are just like whoa, that was really cool. That's good. Um, Give Me Back My Bullets sales-wise was a pretty big disappointment but they rebounded very well commercially on Street Survivors and ended up being their biggest selling album ever. Nice. Um, it, I think it went up to number four on the album charts, which was the highest one of their records had ever gone. It's and, a big deal in yeah. any year. What year was that? 77. Okay. Okay. So I, that I, was, they were, they were riding high at that point. Yeah. They were, they were the biggest they had ever been. They were the best that they had ever been. Um, not just musically, but also personally. The whole band was getting better. Um, they were fighting less, less drugs, less alcohol. Kind of like everything was like looking up. Mm-hmm. And then the plane crash. Which mm-hmm. happened which happened three days after the album came out. Mm. And so they had already they had already started the the Street Survivors tour, and so um, they were all getting on the band to go from um, uh, somewhere in North in South Carolina to Baton Rouge, and um, for a couple of legs, their airplane had been having trouble. There had been some engine trouble, but the pilots just kept telling them that it's fine. There's nothing wrong. Did you know. a chartered flight? No, it was, a, it was a private plane. Oh, this was their plane. This was their plane. That's wow. the luck they had gotten to at that point. I mean, when you have a band as big as Skinner, you kind of have to have one. That's a yeah. lot of people. I guess that's true. I mean, including the crew, and they also had backup singers that were with them on stage. And I didn't know if they were still chartering. I know Van Halen kept chartering for a while. No, Leonard Skinner got to that point pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, 
Now they didn't own the plane; they were they were leasing it. Okay. So, um, so for a couple of legs on that trip, they were having trouble, but the pilots just kept telling them, "Stop bothering us. We know what we're doing. Everything's fine. Go back to your seat." So on the way to Baton Rouge, they ran out of fuel before they could get there. Oh, that's that's something that you would think you could just not do. Yeah. Well, it's one I'm not of, a pilot. I don't know. It's still one of the um one of the unexplained mysteries in rock and roll was how that plane ran out of fuel. No one really knows why. Hmm. Because Ronnie got in a fight with the fuel tank. Because, <laughs> um, like, the records when they left the airport showed that they had gotten enough fuel. They were like, did they, did they leave the engine on too long before they took off? Some people say that in a panic, the pilot accidentally dumped the fuel because one of the engines had gone out and he was trying to switch it to the other engine. There's some speculations that the co-pilot was inebriated um, during a flight and that he messed something up. Um, There's also questions of just like they had just passed an airport when they realized they were out of fuel. And so it was just like what caused them to not realize that they were running low, that they couldn't have just landed at the airport because when they called Baton Rouge, they said, uh, this is an emergency. We're running out of fuel. Where is an airport that we could um, touch down to? And before they even responded, they had called again and saying, we're going to turn around and go to this airport. So they knew that they had passed it. Mm-hmm. And you would just you would think that a that a pilot would be aware. When the plane is starting to run out of fuel, was mm-hmm. there a fuel leak somewhere? Was there – we don't know. It's it's still a mystery to this day why – because the faulty engine was not, was not what brought the plane down. It was the lack of fuel. They literally ran out of fuel, and the, and the plane just turned off in midair. Hmm. And so because of that, the pilots could really do nothing to steer the plane or – do anything to try and soften the crash land. It was just like wherever the plane was when the fuel ran out, that's where it's going to go. That really sucks. Yep. And so um, it's the accounts that I've read. It's it seems to be one of the most horrific things that a human being could really ever go through first off those moments in the air when you know you're going to crash because they knew they were going down mm-hmm. and just that those moments it was the were, whole band on board the, the whole band. band the whole crew everyone was on the plane this was not a randy Rhodes situation where a couple people were on board this was the entire band and the entire crew so they ended up crashing in the trees in a swamp just in Mississippi just before the Louisiana border. Mm. Um, and, I mean, pretty much everyone got pretty um, badly mutilated 
in that crash. Um, the, the pilot and the co-pilot died instantly. Um, several crew members died. Their, um, one of their road managers died. Um, Steve Gaines died, as well as his sister, who was singing back up with them. Mm. And Ronnie Van Zant died. Really? Mm-hmm. That's kind of a big, big deal. Oh That's yeah, big. it was a huge deal. But also, like that, most of the other band like was in life-threatening condition. Gary Rossington had broken both of his arms, his leg had punctured his lungs and his stomach. Um, Billy Powell had a face laceration so bad that his nose was hanging on by like a thread. Mm. Uh, Artemis Pyle uh, walked six miles to a um, to a farmhouse to get help with his ribs poking out of his side. Six miles through a swamp. Yeah, that that can lead to some serious complications. Yep. Infections. Yeah. Yeah, and because of where they crashed, it was a nightmare to try and get them out. The uh, all of the ambulances kept getting stuck in the mud. They had to bring in like construction equipment to because they had to like get them out from the top of the plane because the plane split into three parts when it hit the trees. There was a group of bodies just like at the front end of the plane inside that was that were in various states of dead or dying or just trying to get out. Um, Billy Powell like described it as just like this was we felt like we were in Vietnam. Just like whatever was the most horrific thing that you could imagine, like it was ten times that. It was literally like we were in a zone. That's intense. I mean, so sad. The whole all the accounts that I've read of that, it's like this wasn't just a the plane went down and you know, whoever was in it died instantly. That's yeah. They, uh, I mean, I don't want to get too like sad or morbid with it because that's just not typically our mood for the podcast. But right, um, there was there were some things they were talking about in that crash that was just like I can't even imagine going. I can't imagine living through that and having to remember all of it. Yeah. You want to talk about nightmares and and PTSD? I mean, that's just how do you get over something like that? Yeah, never getting on a plane again. Especially when it uh, when it kills some of your closest friends. Yeah. Goodness. So obviously, when Ronnie died, there was it was just like, well, like what do we do? He was the band. And everyone was in agreement saying that without Ronnie, there is no let. Uh, I almost said Led Zeppelin. There is no Leonard Skinner. Mm-hmm. And so, for ten years, Leonard Skinner was gone. There was there was no Skinner because it was just like you can't have it without him. Right. And. Um, and of course, you know, they all went off to do different projects. 
but we get to 1987, which is the 10 year anniversary of the crash, and we have the Leonard Skinner tribute tour. And it's called that because they can't officially use uh, the Leonard Skinner name, but by saying that it's a tribute tour, because there was there was lots of agreements made with Ronnie's and Steve's widow saying that you know they had made deals with Gary and Alan, saying that um, you know the Leonard Skinner name is done. We don't want people capitalizing off that name, um, capitalizing off of their deaths. So, pretty much the agreement was made that Leonard Skinner will not reform. Hmm. But um, what they did was they got um, they got Ronnie's little brother Johnny to be the new vocalist, who was already fairly successful with bands of his own, but nothing, of course, near the level of what Leonard Skinner had been. Oh, oh my gosh. Johnny Van Zant, thirty-eight special. So that's Donnie Van Zant. Now, whether maybe There's three Johnny, of them, what? Yeah. So Donnie Van Zant is the founder and leader of thirty-eight special, which is insane. Yeah. Uh, maybe Johnny has done some stuff with them, like more recently. But I, but Johnny was not a member of thirty-eight special, I believe. Like during their heyday. Okay, yes, that is that is true. I'm I'm on the Wikipedia page now. I'm fact checking, fact checking the podcast while we're at it. Yeah, yeah. That, wow. Yeah, when I learned that Donnie Van Zant was the leader of Thirty Eight, I was just like, wow, I did not know that. It's incredible because they got pretty huge in the late seventies, early eighties. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so Johnny, so you've got Ronnie, Donnie, and Johnny. If that's if that's not confusing, um, Johnny becomes the new singer of the band. I mean, because I mean, one of the big questions was going to be how could you ever replace Ronnie? Right. It, and I feel like that that was the best choice that they could have made. Someone who is a great singer, but he's in the family. It's not another singer coming in and bringing his own style and his own, um, you know, fame with him. Someone that is as close to Ronnie as you're going to get. Kind of keeping it in the family is the only way that it could work. Right. They're just a man. Before they reunited in 87, there was another tragedy in the band. Oh, no. Um, Alan Collins, who was one of the original guitar players, um, he was in a car crash drunk with his girlfriend. His girlfriend was killed, and he was paralyzed from the chest down. Yeah, that kind of that kind of messes things up. Mm-hmm. And so once that happened, he was never going to play guitar again, and he eventually died in 1990. Mm. Um, after they did the uh, the tribute tour, a new agreement was made that as long as um, three classic members of Skinnerd are in the band, that they could use the name Skinnerd. But okay. obviously, 
somewhere along the road, that agreement has been nullified because right now there's only one classic member in Skinnerd, and that's Gary Rossington. He's right now he's the only constant member of of Skinnerd. Oh, so they're still going. Yeah, they're reportedly supposed to be doing a farewell tour that keeps getting interrupted, obviously by COVID, and um, but the the end is supposed to be near for the band. I mean, they're they're getting into their seventies at this point. But the other crazy thing is that, except for Gary, and I'm I'm about to fact check and see if Artemis Pyle as well, but everyone else that has played on all of the 70s classic records has passed away. That's kind of sad. I know. So are they, are they still making making music? Is that still a thing or are they just... Yeah, I think there's, there's supposed to be a uh, supposed to be a new album, I think, sometime soon. Nothing Comes Easy... No, that looks like it's a, yeah, that's a, that's like a greatest hits. Uh, Artemis Pyle is still alive, but he, him and Gary are the only surviving members of the people. And again, considering how many people were in the band, in the band, as well as the lineup changes, that is quite tragic that everyone has died. And especially only, I say only two, not to diminish their deaths but of all the members only two of them died in the plane crash so it's not like saying that the plane crash took out a large portion of the mem of the band members yeah so you'd you had that, you'd think that something as crazy as that would end it all yeah but so you had Ronnie and Steve that died in the plane crash you had Alan that died due to complications of his paralysis um, you had uh Bob Burns. I can't remember how he died, but he died. I think like in the nineties. Uh, Leon Wilkinson died in the early two thousands from um just ton alcohol and drug issues, like pretty much sent him into liver failure. Wow. Um, Billy Powell died of a heart attack in the late two thousands. Um, Ed King died in the 2010s. Um, I think he also had a heart attack. And um, and yeah, so pretty much that just leaves uh, Gary Rossington as the as the last as as one of their live recent live albums says he is the last of the street survivors. That's intense. It's like uh, Final Destination. Yeah. So I know that we just spent a lot of time on their history, but it's that the their story is a big part of what makes Leonard Skinner who they are. Also, don't do drug kids. Don't do don't do drugs, kid. So yeah. Don't do don't do that. Don't drink and drive a plane. <laughs> drive a plane. Just don't. Are you sure that you're not drinking right now? Don't alcohol, okay? I I'm actually done with my tea. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm done. I have consumed my non-alcoholic beverage. Time for the alcoholic, but no. Um. So on the name, 
it's spelled really weird. Yes. Oh, yeah, we didn't even talk about why they're called Leonard Skinner. I know there's a reason why, and I'm going to let you say it in case I get it wrong. So they had a gym teacher in high school that they reviled. They hated him. And it became a running joke that um, when they were young, like, they would uh, – um, if, if, like, a wrong number called – and someone picked up the phone, and then they hung up. And they said, "Who called?" And they said, "Leonard Skinner's calling." Um, and that was or his name. Like, like it just—it was a running joke through them that they always remember. Just like if you know, if if trouble's about to happen, that means Leonard Skinner's coming. <laughs> now his name was not spelled like that, and it right. actually wasn't completely his name. So his name was Leonard Skinner, no D at the end. Oh. So they they slightly changed it. Um, but the funny thing is, is that um, he ended up kind of having a pseudo relationship with the band after they hit it big. Nice. Not, not super friendly, but like to where they kind of stayed in contact because for a lot of legal reasons, they had to kind of remain in each other's lives about, you know, just – Every now and again, each member would fire back on who gets to use that name. And, you know, mm-hmm. he, he went into real estate and was just like, I want to do Leonard Skinner Realty. And then it's like, wait, but we've got a band called Leonard Skinner, but it's also my name. You know, what do we do? Yeah. But he's always given them their blessing and just like, hey, I think it's pretty cool that a big time band named themselves after me. I guess they, I guess in some way they liked me after all. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, okay. Let's let's talk about what we're gonna hear in a Skinner song. Let's let's do that because we've been historying it up for the past hour. Yeah. Um. So Leonard Skinner, they get this tag of Southern rock. Nice. And that's, it's, it is, that is a industry mandated genre. That is not something that the artists set out to create or named. It was, it was something that really that when Leonard Skinner hit big, they were like, uh, okay, they're they're Southern Rock, and they just went ahead and lumped a bunch of other pre-existing bands into that. Almond Brothers, Charlie Daniels, uh, Marshall Tucker, Molly Hatchet. Mm-hmm. They kind of all just like got lumped into this same category. And Ronnie always hated that label. He was just like, we're not Southern rockers. Like, we're not, we're rockers from the South. He saw himself as a as a rock and blues artist first, and not whatever you know they were trying to promote as this southern rock thing. Mm-hmm. He wasn't trying to put southern flavor into what he was doing. He was just making the rock and roll music he wanted to make, and the fact that he was from the south just happened to be a an inevitable flavor. Mm-hmm. It was never something like he was trying to go, okay, I'm going to intentionally mix these things together to create this Southern sound. He was like, the South is a part of me, and so it's going to be in my music. Mm-hmm. Makes sense to me. 
And so um, the, th the thing that you're really going to notice lyrically, I would say is a big reason is because um, a lot of the things that people will say about Southern rock is that it's a mixture of rock and country. Mm -hmm. But when you look at, uh, when you look at Ronnie's lyrics, quite poetic he's not he's not just throwing out dumb country lyrics <laughs> oh yeah casey musgraves flashbacks yeah he's yeah. he's not uh he's not just like and well i guess i'll talk more about this when we get into the songs themselves but <laughs> it's he he had a great poetic spirit about him mm -hmm. not in the sense to where he was getting very metaphorical or like enigmatic he wasn't brandon flowers uh writing right but at the same time you you look at it and go that's that's not the easy way to talk about this subject mm -hmm. he he tended to be very uh very original in the way that he presented things. He never used cliches. He didn't, especially again, being having a Southern perspective on everything he was talking about. There's so many cliches and ways to talk about certain things. And I felt like he avoided um, saying things in a dumb, ordinary way. He was, right. was a really great lyricist. And so what you'll find in Skinner's songs is you're going to find songs that are about everyday people, everyday situations, particularly scenarios that you would find in the South, but they're going to be presented in a way that you don't have to like country music or Southern music to get something out of those lyrics. They're the, they're the gateway drug to country. No, I wouldn't even say that. Really? Because, again, I don't feel like his lyrics really um, – I guess you would say that they're much closer to Johnny Cash than stereotypical lyrics, country lyrics. Okay. Like, I think that if you're wanting to get into country music, Leonard Skinner lyrics would not be the way to go. They're much more in line with blues music. Uh. And one of the titles that I had heard commonly thrown around in my research was that Leonard Skinner was the American Rolling Stones. And I'd never thought of them that way before. But when I thought about it, I was just like, you know what? They really kind of are. Yeah, that makes a little bit of sense. Mm -hmm. um, they, they have a lot more rock and roll in them than you realize. Again, the, the, the unfortunate tag with Southern Rock is that it's equal parts Southern and rock, but I would say that it much further leans into the rock and roll side for Leonard Skinner. Yeah. Uh, yeah there's a opinion. lot, there's a lot more blues influence in there than one would realize. And I would say the country aspect is really quite minimal. Obviously there's a little, you can, you can hear the accents in Ronnie's voice. Um, you can, I mean, 
obviously with a song like say Sweet Home Alabama, that's your that's gonna be unmistakably Southern. But like they don't the guitarists for sure do not play like country artists. I mean, these are rip roaring rock and roll guitar players. Ooh, there's there's some moments where it shows through, but most of the time they're very I guess they show their versatility is a good way of they're not country players with rock and roll tendencies. They're rock players with country tendencies. Right. There's a big that, difference. That's true. Yeah. That's a it's not it's not Brad Paisley putting on and just going, Oh, he can play pretty good for a country guy. Right. These <laughs> these guys these guys are rock guitarists first. And then they've also got this these other aspects to their playing. But you were, you're also going to hear a lot of soul, a lot of, I mean, just there's a lot of gospel aspect. Just listen to the way they do a lot of their background vocals. And Ronnie's voice just has a real soulfulness to it. Oh, yeah, that is true. And I would say as far as his technique and his delivery, he's much more of a blues singer than a country singer. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, his, like, he's kind of one of them pitch perfect in a weird way kind of singers. Yeah, very unique voice. It's it's, it's very it's just it's so pure and big chest voice and there's a lot of like paying attention to exactly how every word sounds and that kind of thing. And and because there's a great backing band that can handle the instrumental sections and keep that part very interesting, he has the I guess the time to be able to have um, every section where he's at the forefront be exactly perfect. And so that's, that's kind of my thing in Leonard Skinner is that, that trade-off between instrument to vocals is so, so good. Like both complement each other, even when they're not playing at the same time. Yeah. I don't know how to explain that, but we'll definitely be able to hear that in our next section. Yes, I think at this point is a good time to go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the six Leonard Skinner songs that we have picked for this episode. So stay tuned. We will be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Good Music Podcast. We spent quite a long time on our first segment we haven't really had a long first segment in a while uh, but it was really good so now it's time to give some context to what we talked about and actually talk about the music this is the good music podcast after all if you want to listen along there is a link in the description to a spotify playlist that has not only these songs but all of the songs from all of the previous episodes highly recommend that you do check that out and you do listen to these songs it'd be such a shame if you got through that whole first segment and now this whole segment and the whole podcast didn't even listen to the six songs that we're suggesting for you guys. Hopefully they'll serve as a great introduction or maybe a great listening experience if you're already a big Leonard Skinner fan. They have a nice flow from start to finish and they're just some good music. So without any more jabbering on, let's start with Sweet Home Alabama. Yes, I mean... 
come on, is there is there any other way to start a skin set? No, no, yeah, and and as soon as that like first note came in, I'm like, ooh, I'm gonna enjoy this episode. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't look so. to see what it is before you start doing your initial listen. Yeah, no, I I started the playlist that we have and I was like going through the last carcass song and then I skipped and I heard like the one, two or whatever it was. And I'd never heard that because I guess they cut that off on the radio version. Oh yeah. Like, huh, this is pretty interesting. And then do do I'm like, yep, that's sweet home Alabama. <laughs> so yeah, and then from that I I pretty much predicted a pretty good uh helping of this list. There were a couple of twists and turns that I didn't, I was not aware of, and I really liked those songs. But we're not talking about that yet. We're talking about Sweet Home, Sweet Home, Alabama. So why Alabama? So Alabama is, Alabama is where they recorded their records. So it was, it was essentially a second home for them. Um, they recorded at uh, Muscle Shoals, which they talk about in the song. Muscle mm. Shoals has got the Swampers. That was a line that for the longest time I never knew what that meant. I guess you do now. Uh, Muscle Shoals is one of the legendary recording studios. Um, that's where Aretha Franklin did uh, Respect. Ooh, yeah, that's that'll put you on the map. Yeah, that alone is is enough to earn you legendary status. But lots lots of other big time. Uh, records were made there and so the swampers was the name of the uh of the of the the rhythm section that was the house band there so the, hmm. the session guys because that was the other that was i would say the big thing about muscle shoals was that you go there if you want to get a really great backing band for what mm-hmm. you're you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna get one of the best rhythm sections of all time. If you're a band if you're a group that doesn't like uh that doesn't have like a band band, like if you're say a solo artist that just uses whoever is in the studio, mm-hmm. go to Muscle Shoals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so this song, like in particular, like what I was talking about. Um, in the last segment, saying like the trade-off between instrument and vocals, this is exactly mm-hmm. what I mean. There's so many like little solos here and there. Yeah, and the and that gospel choir that you're talking about. I mean, everything's front and center. Just letting you know exactly like what you're going to listen to in this set for this song. It's a great, great starting. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, this is the this is the prototypical Skinnerd song. Mm-hmm. You wanna you wanna find out everything about Skinnerd in one song? Here you go. Yeah, and that's this that's is the some one nice go. rock and roll guitar playing too, like yeah. just those natural harmonics and that you know pretty intense distortion for what you would expect. Uh, very fast, very but very soulful too, it's and very the, clean. It's got this weird. Uh, uh, I don't want to say exactly dime bag because it's not, but it's reminiscent where it's, but it's bluesy, but it's soulful. It's just somewhere in the middle of that. And I, it's just, yeah, I guess it's the, it's the Southern, uh, 
concoction that you get when you when you mix rock and guys from the south you get stuff like this well i would say a big part of it is the blues again right right the blues is kind of the the ingredient that holds all of this together right um like i was saying in the first segment um ed king was the main musical uh, mastermind of Sweet Home Alabama, and also, like I was saying in the previous segment, um, this was this was recorded, written and recorded before the first album even came out, which is just insane. Did they, they were like, record over it. No, they didn't even touch it up or say like, "Oh, let's fix this part here or there." No, I mean it was it was already in the can, ready to go. <laughs> whenever they were waiting for that first album to officially come out. That's... Oh, so they, this wasn't like, let's not put it on the first album when they were compiling the first album. No, the, the first album was done. Okay, okay. I was, was thinking, in... why would you not? Whatever. <laughs> no, it was... The first record was in the can. It just... They were they were waiting on on just whatever they needed to have done before it officially came out and they're just like hey we've got this other song let's just go ahead and record it and then it it's become sweet home alabama yeah which just shows you the insane level of creativity and inspiration they were in that first part yeah yeah and they were making like- when they I were making to... that first record, it was just like, man, they were just, they were in a different headspace. I got this, uh, I got this diddly. Let's just turn it into one of the biggest songs of all time. <laughs> yeah, man, let me tell you what. I feel like there's kind of been a bit of a parabola with this song. Um, because obviously this was their first big hit. So I would say like in the mid 70s, this was their most famous song. Nice. And then Freebird jumped ahead of it for a good while. Where it was just like Freebird is the uh Skinner song. And now I would say modern day, I kind of almost feel like unless you're like a musician, Freebird mm-hmm. has kind of been forgotten about again. And Sweet Home Alabama has kind of come back up as the recognizable yeah. Song. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. I wish I wish it was like a like a duel. You know, like half half the population is Sweet Home Alabama and half the population is Freebird and every year we get together and have like a showdown or something. <laughs> well, I'm kind of like Metallica Megadeth, you know. If you think that um Sweet Home Alabama in a showdown against Freebird. Well, I mean, I mean, like you know, the fans kind of have their have their friendly fights about it. Yeah, I, I get what you mean. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, the songs literally get in the boxing ring, put on their boxing gloves. No. <laughs> no. Uh, we we all know what would happen if if that. Came. Yeah, we would. We do know what would happen. Ah. But anyway, no, Sweet Home Alabama is great. No, and yeah, incredible. It's definitely, like even among musicians, it's it's well uh, accepted. Oh because, yeah, because 
because of those like little virtuosic piano parts and the little guitar solos and the way it's just constructed and there's so much happening. It's such a simple um, chord progression. And it, yet they bring like, out some life out of it. There's there ten, I it's got two of the most iconic guitar riffs ever. You've got that intro of the bum bum ba dum ba dum bum ba dum ba dum bum bum. And then you've also got that great um mid verse break the ba da da ba da 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 I mean that riff also is just like golly, that's one of the best guitar riffs ever. Yeah, when I actually first heard this song, the proper song, um, because I always heard like the Kid Rock edited uh, summer long version. And so I'm like, oh, this is Sweet Home Alabama, like the actual thing. And I didn't know for the longest time. Obviously, I was still pretty young when I figured that out. Um, But I was like, ooh, this riff is so much cooler (laughs) because it's just got a little bit of got a little bit more swing to it i don't know i don't know how to explain it. it's just the way that the notes are sequenced it's not surrounded by suck okay but okay that's not you know what kid rock is pretty good but sometimes he samples songs improperly i think anyway but yeah so sweet home alabama not not the Kid Rock version. So I have a uh, an interesting personal experience with this song. Um, I I think I've talked about on the on the podcast before about um, one of the bands that I was in that was a bluegrass country band. And is this the, is this the over the summer dry yeah. band? Yes. <laughs> so uh, the very first year that we did it. Um, I was playing bass. Ethan Scott was playing drums. My sister was on acoustic guitar, and then a friend of ours was playing the banjo, and she was a pretty good banjo player. And we we wore cowboy outfits, like it was meant to be, like as legit as it gets. Mm-hmm. And about halfway through the summer, uh, I had an idea of going, "What if we close the show with Sweet Home Alabama?" And I was just like, "Hey, can you?" Have you ever heard that song? I was talking to the banjo player, and she's like, I don't think I've ever heard that. And I played it for her, and she literally figured it out in like five minutes how to play it on the banjo. And I got up and actually sang and played bass on it, and it ended up becoming a huge hit over the summer. And so for about half a summer, four nights a week, three shows a night, I sang Sweet Home Alabama. Yeah, so you pretty much know every little detail about this song now we didn't do all the solos and stuff just because we didn't we weren't we didn't have the power in our instruments to be able to push that kind of feel i would pretty much just do uh uh verse verse chorus verse chorus sing along acapella chorus last chorus end ah the uh the pop construction well the we only have two minutes to do this song plus we don't have any electric instruments except for my bass oh <laughs> yeah that'll do it so that was that was all we we could have done but it was still really fun 
and um, it it grew me closer to that song. You you say that in a in like a sarcastic way. No, that's not at all what I meant. <laughs> okay. Uh, also, I I wanted this opportunity to also just highlight how great of a lyricist Ronnie Van Zant was. Oh, that's important. Yeah. If you're gonna sing a ode to Alabama, think of what a normal like country or even just like generic rock vocalist would write. They're gonna talk about the landscapes. They're gonna talk. About they're gonna talk about southern culture, southern stereotypes. Like, is this not what a normal lyricist would do? They're gonna talk about. I love the beach and I love the meadows and I love Birmingham. I love whatever else is in Alabama. Like that's that's what they're gonna do. They're gonna that's they're gonna be a whole song. If they just were just like, all right, write a song called "Sweet Home Alabama," go. That's what ninety nine percent of lyricists in any genre would do. When you look at the lyrics of of Sweet Home Alabama, that's not at all what it does. Um, the only thing that really describes is briefly in the chorus and then talking about muscle shoals, which is, again, something that most lyricists would not write about Alabama. Mm-hmm. Like the first verse is like, a a more poetic way of talking about how much he loves Alabama. Big wheels keep on turning, carry me home to see my kin. Singing songs about the Southland. I miss old Bammy once again, and I think it's a sin. Like what a what a smart way to just communicate. I love Alabama. And then you've got the second verse. Well, I heard Mister Young sing about her. Well, I heard old Neil put her down. I hope Neil Young will remember a Southern man. Don't need him around anyhow. So he takes the second verse to fire criticism at Neil Young, who <laughs> wrote a, a deprecating song about the South called Southern Man, which that's a whole bag of worms politically I'm not going to go into now. Uh, the whole issue being not that Neil Young was wrong, but that he – in Ronnie's mind, made an umbrella statement about every Southern person and that he's saying that's not true. Um, and then the third one, talking about U.S. politics in general, uh, putting down the governor of Alabama. Yeah, that's not something you think you would do. Yeah, talking about Watergate and first talking about muscle shoals and about the great music made in alabama it's just it's such a more clever nuanced way of approaching the topic of alabama rather than just again talking about the landmarks and the uh all the things they like about alabama this is my favorite food this is my favorite place to go this is where i went when i was like Get that's what every other person would do, but Ronnie, like, he found such a unique way to approach it, and why a song like this has lasted. 
Yeah, that's a that's a good point. So. I never really thought about that because I don't, you know, back when I was back when I first heard this song and first listened to you know the the whatever I didn't pay attention to the lyrics, but I always thought, huh, this isn't, um, you know, kind of like the Oklahoma song where like wind comes sweeping down the plane like yeah we are windy and we have planes big whoop you know look on a map that's obvious right <laughs> but i i like it never fazed me that sweet home alabama is more than that because it's just a given you know this this song is kind of just in the public consciousness it, it is what it is at this point you don't really step back and think oh my gosh someone had to make this song not about the geography of the state, mm-hmm. you know, or someone's personal connection to it. Right, right, exactly. Which, like, even still, that's that's. It's that's not a laundry point. list. It's not a laundry list. Well, it if you really were to break it down, I guess you could you could make an argument that yeah, it's like it's a list, but it's in such a creative way that it doesn't feel like that at all Mm-mm. that it's like yeah he's listing different things about alabama but it's like not he's just saying cool stuff you know yeah i don't know how to describe it but so now now that i've kind of used this song as a way to bring it to your attention now we can start to really see the creative energy in a lot of Ronnie's lyrics. Yeah. I'm curious to listen to the lyrics and the stories behind these songs, because I I feel like Leonard Skinner is going to be that kind of a band that the stories behind these songs are going to be some of the best. So let's, uh, I can't turn this into a pun. Let's just go to give me three steps. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to try to really force it and just didn't one there. So yeah, so I guess we're off the debut now. Yes. So this is Gimme Three Steps. Um, so this is not, I mean, this is not based off of a specific event that happened, but I mean, honestly, it's it's probably likely that this in some way has happened, although I would probably, probably not with someone pulling a gun. Okay, so, see, I don't, I don't know what you're referring to <laughs> so so I'm, I'm assuming you didn't pick up on the story of the, that it's telling in this song nope um i'm not good at that <laughs> i was cutting a rug down at a place called the jug with a girl named linda lou when I'm, when in walked a man with a gun in his hand and he was looking for you know who so there's your setup right there pretty much he's at the at the bar dancing with a, another guy's girl not re- not meaning to, not knowing that she was someone else's girl. But he comes in, sees it, and overreacts and tries to kill him. And so the 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 three steps is to the door so I can get out of here before he kills me. But the whole this whole story is told from the perspective of like a guy telling it afterwards, like something that's scary in the moment, but afterwards you can't help but just like laugh about it. Mm-hmm. You know, those, you know, those moments that happen yeah. while they're happening, it's definitely yeah. serious. But then afterwards, after it's over and the adrenaline's wore off, you realize the ridiculousness of what just happened to you and you just have to laugh. 
yeah no i i know exactly what you're talking about it's so weird that this song is it's kind of cliche but like the themes are cliche like oh yeah jealous boyfriend he's gonna kill me ah gotta get out of the bar you know but it's that's kind of like the little the, the tidbit that you just gave me was so not boring I don't know yeah. how to describe it. It was interesting. It wasn't, it was, it, it grabbed your attention. Like if I was listening to the lyrics, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm getting it. I'm getting it now. Obviously I know the sounds he's making. So it's making sense now. <laughs> I'm liking that. Yeah. So, um, so again, this is not based off of an actual event, but, I mean, you know that Ronnie got in his fair share of bar fights. Mm -hmm. And I think the funny thing is that likely he was in the position of the guy with the gun most of the time. Because in the song, he's trying to avoid a fight. I was scared and fearing for my life. I was shaken like a leaf on a tree. Wait a minute, mister. I didn't even kiss her. Don't want no trouble with you. That's something Ronnie would never say. In real, I think mm -hmm. it's almost like he's writing the story from one of his victims' perspectives. He's not writing from the perspective of the guy that's on the bad end of the gun. He's normally in real life, he's the guy, he's the big. Yeah, that. Hmm. So I think that after learning it, it actually kind of made me see the song a little bit different. He's the he's actually the villain in the story. And the person he's writing from is perhaps not his perspective. He's putting himself in someone else's shoes. Cause he's never someone that would run out of the run through the door screaming. Yeah. Which is what he says happens at the very end. Uh, and you could hear me screaming a mile out towards the door. Ronnie would do that. And so I think that, again, band knowing him and hearing him sing that, that probably, like, makes everyone laugh. It's a, it's a, it's a funny situation to hear in a song trying to get out of a fight rather than start one. Yeah. Well, but you wouldn't think that this being their their uh debut yeah again that's the the audience not as much but the band for sure like you you imagine they're having a laugh writing this going <laughs> yeah that would never happen mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i mean this song is not kind of like what i talked about in sweet home alabama this song is not so much instrumentally centered it's very it's very story centered yeah i mean most yeah, of the things that's happening is He's got some great guitar work in this song. Oh yeah, that's, I mean that's not to say that the instrumentals were bad at all. Yeah, you don't you don't really have a blazing solo on the song, but just the 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 groove of the song is very mm -hmm. infectious. Some nice bluesy bends. You have some interesting percussion there too. So, well, I just I just reverbed out of the, your phone, I guess. Yeah, that's okay. We'll leave it in. We'll leave it in. 
it's it breaks the fourth wall a little bit for those of you who don't know we record remote so it it has its special helping of issues oh yeah <laughs> um but yeah, and you you also have to imagine the place he's going to be talking about is probably a place that would have like line dancing, or mm-hmm. and I feel like instrumentally it that that uh, supports the theme of the song. This is probably um, the type oh. of song that would be playing while this scenario in the story is going down. This this really is such a line dancing song. It's got like that. Bam, bam, bam. It's got a the good tempo for it. I mean, I've never been line dancing, so I'm kind of guessing, but I feel like that this is a good danceable, upbeat, fun song. Like this is, this is not. Uh, it's not instrumentally. This is not portraying the terror he's describing. Which yeah, I, it's it's a great contrast. Mm-hmm. Because again, it's the whole point is that you're you're meant to listen to this and have a laugh. Yeah, it is like the music's kind of fun. Yeah, you wouldn't think that that listening to the music that it'd be so like standoffish and confrontational. Yeah, life or, a life or death situation happening. In the- <laughs> right, right. Uh, that's that's pretty funny. It's pretty funny interesting and funny humorous so yeah that's see there's something that i didn't know i'm already learning things yeah there you go i've I've, I've been learning things for the past two hours don't worry (laughs) (laughs) but man lucas what is that smell Oh, oh it's it's the smell of death <laughs> what? Hey, oh that's my. what it says in the song. Wait, really? Yeah, the smell of death surrounds you. So that smell is the next. Mm-hmm. Oh, it does say that. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so this is obviously one of those that I was not familiar with coming in here. Yeah, there you go. Whiskey bottles. That first line sounds like a like a Hendrix lyric. Yeah. So, um, uh, this is actually, um, a direct retelling of Gary Rossington's car crash. Mm. Whiskey bottles and brand new cars, oak tree, you're in my way. Uh, and that's literally what he did is he drove through a tree and into a house. And this was, this was not the one where the where the girlfriend died or is this no no because that happened after the plane crash okay so this was the one that gary washington was in okay but but did anyone die no he was just gary was just very badly injured he's pretty much this song is a warning to the rest of the band that if you don't change and really he's also talking to himself as well if you don't change your ways the you're gonna end up dead Mm. uh angel of darkness is upon you stuck a needle in your arm so take another toke have a blow for your nose one more drink fool would drown you yeah uh 
can't speak a word when you're full of lewds, talking about quaaludes. Say you'll be all right come tomorrow, but tomorrow might not be here for you. So, is this, these are Ronnie's lyrics? Yes. Okay. So he's, this is after he had already made a determination for himself, and this song is just him warning the rest of his bandmates, hey, you know, you all need to straighten up and cut all this out or you're going to end up dead. And that, and he's just like, look at what happened with Gary. It's a miracle that he survived. But I guarantee if that happens again, he won't be so lucky. He's saying that they're so, they're so close to death and self-destruction that you can smell the death. Hmm. And so this, this is meant to be a very serious song, a wake-up call for the rest of the band. And again, to him as well, because he was in the process of recovering as well. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a warning to anyone that might be in a similar situation. But the, the actual event is inspired by that car crash from Gary Washington. The- these are the things that you only get on the Good Music Podcast. You know That's what I mean? right. That's why it's such a great place to be. But yeah, I, I, it's it's kind of a shame that they're all trying to, you know, like clean up their act substance-wise. And then the thing that really, that does it is unrelated. I know. It's really it, sad. It, it's almost cruel that as they were getting better, all of a sudden something that they had no fault in took them out. Yeah. But I mean, obviously, again, remember that this album came out three days before. Right. Can, now think of how um, how eerily morbid it is that you've got a song that says – the smell of death surrounds you three days before several of them die in a plane crash. Right. That's, that's what I was just It's strangely prophetic. Even though it wasn't the cause of death that he was explaining in the lyrics, you take that chorus and it's just like, oh gosh. You can imagine that this was a hard song for people to listen to. Yeah. That uh, that Martin. album art that goes with this record um, was the original album art, but right after that plane crash happened, uh, they changed it because just also think about the band covered in fire right before a plane crash. Wait, I gotta look at I gotta look at the original album art. Well, oh. again, you can see it on Spotify. It's the one that's oh, on Spotify. Oh, so I'm looking at the I'm looking at the changed one here with my lyrics pulled up. Ah, yeah, with with just the black background. Um, maybe. <laughs> no, it's the it's the one that's got like the eagle spread across. Maybe I'm looking at something different. You're probably looking at it like a greatest hits or something. I must be looking at a, at a greatest hits cover, but uh, yeah, okay. That that would be kind of. And especially so the guy in the middle in the red is Steve Gaines, and he's the one that it looks like literally the fire is consuming him. Mm. 
That's so weird. It's when bands write songs about death and then you listen to it later after one of the members had died. Like, I thought that, like, for the longest time, you know, when I when I first heard Cemetery Gates and it was about, like, uh, my best friend died and then you'd see all these interviews about Phil talking about when, you know, Dimebag died. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like the same kind of headspace. Mm-hmm. It's really weird. And yet Dimebag's the guy playing this the solo. And it wasn't for many, many, I think 13 years that that happened. But yeah. It completely changes the meaning of the song. I don't want to say that it like adds this new meaning to the song that makes it better because that's kind of morbid. But it's like... Yeah, I mean, it does add meaning to the song. Like, it adds weight to the song, like emotional weight to the song. That wasn't intended. Um, but I think it, it, if we're looking from just the song's perspective, it adds a, a richer history to it in a way, like a, a more lore to it and something that that you you kind of grow to appreciate. Yeah. That that's actually how you know they would respond to some kind of tragic event because now here they are actually responding that way or oh this is how i'm going to die and then they were right you know um it's it's just it's one of those weird things about rock and roll you just can't explain that's just legendary songs like that just have that out of paranormal kind of <laughs> weird thing about him but but yeah anyway not to not to get not to get morbid on everybody yeah not death too much how about those uh guitar solos yeah yeah i mean not not totally the blazing kind that we saw in sweet home alabama but but still um, i would I think... disagree that that big solo at the end mm. you've got some pretty insane stuff happening well, I was I was about to say it's kind of like like very electric ladyland and that it's not it's not let ha- let's have a fun time kind of guitar solo. No. More of like let me play some notes that fit well with this rather sad chord progression. That the the meaning of the solo doesn't come from the virtuosity, but the virtuosity helps to create the meaning. Yeah. You got some great three-part harmonies too. Oh yeah. Well, towards sounds, the end sounds of, like two. Well, towards the end of that solo, when they're before they do that those last series of runs, you can you can hear some three part harmony. Oh yeah, there is a little bit there. It's very it's very uh, you have to really pick it apart to get there. But yeah, that is kind of cool, and they're like tight with each other too. And this was seventy seven, so I mean, yeah, this was before. This was before the real tight you know, Prague came around, I guess. Well, yeah, just about at the advent of it, maybe. It all comes back to Prague. It all comes back to Prague on the Good Music Podcast. But, um, yeah. So, it's, it's we're, we're in a different feel than Sweet Home Alabama, right? Yes, but... This is a happy, fun time. Yeah, but we're, we've still been upbeat, but now we can kind of switch to something... I mean, you 
you definitely kind of get to a point at the end of that smell where it's just like, okay, we've taken this as far as it can go. There's there's bound to be a change up now. Right. Now we slow it way down to something simple with simple man. I thought you were going to say with something simple, man. Oh, uh, no, that would have been that would have been way too on the nose. I'm not one for those on the nose puns. I like to be a little bit more intellectual about it. <laughs> that is such a lie that is such a lie i cannot yeah i didn't believe a word of that <laughs> all right yep so we're back on to the uh debut album again this is another pretty big pretty big song oh yeah uh, prob- i would say probably the third after the sweet home alabama Freebird duo this is probably the third kind of song that leonard skinner enjoyers will experience Oh yeah, this is this has become one of the several like big Ronnie tribute songs because I mean really he this is this is Ronnie distilled into verse. Wow, that's kind of nice. You right. wrote your own tribute song. This was this was his philosophy. Mm. Um, so Ronnie wrote this right after his grandmother died. Because, mm. I mean, he was still pretty young because this was on the first record, so his mother was still alive. But um, he said that he was in the shower and the whole song literally just came to him. Wow. Was this a run out of the shower, let's record it real quick kind of situation? <laughs> or? I, don't, I don't know if he <laughs> ran out of the shower, but definitely. So here's one of the things about Ronnie is that he actually never wrote down a single lyric. Oh. He actually all he always remembered every lyric that he came up with. And so something that you find at any auction is a Leonard Skinner lyric page. I didn't know that was something you even auctioned. Oh yeah. Those <laughs> people like I... like the original handwritten lyric songs, those will go for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow, I gotta start writing lyrics. Yeah, the ones that are written on with pen, and they'll sometimes they'll have the little dude like uh, Freddie Mercury's Bohemian Rhapsody, and they've got like doodles on the side. Man, you want to talk about an expensive prize to have, or um, uh, some of the Rush ones that Neil wrote have some pretty cool. Uh, he's got some pretty cool lyrics, and. Um, but yeah, like those those are often things that'll be kind of like prize possessions for people to auction off. And if you ever come across a one saying this was this is a lyric page from Ronnie Van Zant, then you know it's fake because he never wrote them down. Okay, good to and know. Even not only that, but he would even invent lyrics on the spot in the studio. And they would be, like, the right lyric when they would do the final recording. That's awesome. Like, he just, he, he had a natural inborn ability to write words. It wasn't just a, oh, you know, he just, he, he was pretty good, I guess. Like, the more I researched about it, I was just like, that was like, he had for it that few other people could have that just words were his strength one of them i would 
not to say he didn't have other strengths, but I would say that that was one of his biggest ones. Mm. Wow. But I mean, the whole song is just about listening to your mother. In a way, there's nothing more country than that, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have the it doesn't have the the corniness that other songs of this topic could have. Mm-hmm. It just it comes off as very honest, and again, a lot of that comes with the delivery, vocal wise, the great instrumentation behind it. Um, it's just the whole song just works together so well. Mm-hmm. And the song's just about being simple. Yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know how you could do that. Because this is, like I don't know what necessarily each line means, but none of these lines stand out to me as being like, uh, that was kind of weak. Like, uh, yeah. Every single one of them was just like, that's, there is zero level of cringe anywhere here. Uh-huh. It's just all, and for that to come to you immediately, like you'd think when you first started writing a song, it's like, not everything's going to be perfect. You're going to have to put in a filler line here or there. But like to be able to come up with some, really just good stuff to begin with that's true talent that he must be an alien or something like i don't know he's daft punk before daft punk (laughs) (laughs) anyway so so you mentioned a little bit what this song was about yeah is it is it about anything in particular or is it just like hey listen to your mom uh, I mean, pretty much it's just, it's, he, Ronnie has always had a very strong uh, sense of family. Um, he was always, uh, he was always close to his family. His father was very supportive of his musical career. And um, obviously he was close with his brothers and his sisters. Um when he did get married, even though, yes, he was a wild man, a rebel, he still, like, really looked after and took care of his family. In fact, it was his family that uh, was the catalyst for him trying to better his life. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's almost like this was like, a song for whenever he feels like he's losing his way. These are the things that he can come back to and kind of realign his moral compass. Uh, that's, that's pretty unique. I like that. It's kind of like he's remembering, he's remembering what my mom told me. Mama, she has taught me well. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> so yeah, that's 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 I think the 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 importance of the song because mm-hmm. he's because he's uh he's saying he keeps saying don't forget this you know you can do this if you try. Mm-hmm. 
you can you can be a simple man simple being that you don't have to be complicated life doesn't have to be complicated you can make it simple by being simple that's that's nice just very country yeah very country well very southern i should say not very country well both but this is rock so i should say very southern yeah that's nice i like that that's that's kind of about what i expected that it was like oh yeah this simple rule that i like follow i'm a simple man but it's it's good that there's like a, there's a personal aspect to that that's something that you know you don't you don't get a lot in uh in heavy metal and and prog and and things like that that i love to see in the podcast mm-hmm. it's like when, when you write a song about yourself like that's that's true that's true creative expression to be able to you know be the subject you're writing about and be the you know um the writer so that's good so i'm gonna guess that the next song is also of this type yes so this is actually a song um from post plane crash oh the last rebel yes the last rebel yes so this is uh, this actually came out in 94 and um is uh sung by johnny van zandt so this is with the reformed leonard skinnerd okay I was not originally going to include a song from this era, but I was really struggling to find the right fifth song. Because I I knew where the set was going to end. And up to this point, I was just like, all the way up to Simple Man, this is the logical place for the set to go. But I was just like, what do I do for this fifth song? Oftentimes when I'm building these sets, the fifth song is the hardest one for me to figure out because in ways it's the most important because it has to be a logical result of the previous four songs yet it has to set up the last one and then i heard the song and i was just like oh this this fits perfectly Mm -hmm. um this is an actual tribute to ronnie like in the sense that because it was written after his death this was written about him and for him because is that the he, is that the case for most of their post plane crash music? No. Hmm. No. Um the lyrics be... for the most part get pretty dumb afterward, but and that's what kind of made this song so interesting because I was just like, oh my gosh, this is such a great song. That it's it's besides the different voice and the and the more modern production, it sounds like a classic Skinnerd song. Yeah, I, I didn't notice too much of a too much of a difference. I, I mean, would I would not have been able to tell you. I would say the biggest difference probably is that you can tell that it's a different voice, but a, but a, him and Ronnie did have fairly similar voices. Yeah, I mean they are brothers. Almost pass it off as an older Ronnie. 
but that's just speculation. We don't know what his voice would have sounded like when he had, you know, about 15 years past. Yeah. I I honestly thought this was an older Ronnie. Like, I, I thought, oh, this is probably like some mid-80s, late-80s, 90s-something, you know, later kind of comeback sort of thing, which is exactly what it is, but I... I could not distinguish the voices. Well, and then like, I guess that means that they accomplished. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and I mean, obviously, there's some new musical context to what's being played, so it's not perfectly, you know, in line with the other songs. But it's not like they're completely changing philosophy or anything. No, it fits. Yeah. Um... I mean, just look at the bridge. There'll never be another like him. He's the last of a dying breed. Ain't no use trying to change him. I mean, that's Ronnie through and through. He he was a rebel in every sense of the word. He, no matter what side of position he was on, he, um, he was a rebel in the literal sense that he was... Obviously, the number of times he was arrested, he was he was a rebellious natured person. He loved to um, he loved to fight. He loved to um, he loved to stick it to people if he felt they were wrong. Like mm-hmm. he was not someone that was ever quiet. I mean, just look at the way that he very famously roasted Neil Young in Sweet Home Alabama. If he's got a problem with you. He will let you know about it. Yeah, apparently. Um, but then think about a situation when the entire band is steeped in alcohol and drugs. Who was the first one to rebel against that culture and start promoting a straight lifestyle? Ronnie mm, was. That's a good point. Um, the that was one of Leonard Skinner's just all around titles where they were the Southern Rebels. That was the way that they were portrayed by their le- the media. Um, it was a um, and obviously Ronnie was the ringleader of that process. So, in every sense, he was the last rebel. The song, even though they use symbolism to to talk about um. Uh, like an old soldier. It's just the metaphor all is meant to portray Ronnie. That's nice. He keeps to himself, but everybody takes him wrong, but he carried on, got a dream that will never die. Yeah, it it lived on after him, obviously. Mm Mm-hmm. In a way, in a way... The fact that he died young has immortalized him. I honestly, if I had to have guessed going into this podcast, if the lead singer of Leonard Skinner was still around, I would have said yes. And Because it's like, you don't, like they're still in the public consciousness yeah. How do you how do you have the leader of the band completely gone for, you know, what are we at uh, 44 years and 
the band is still a household name. Mm-hmm. It's I I think that it's a shame that more people don't know about Ronnie, and that's if you had to tell me what's the biggest thing I've come away from with Leonard Skinner, it's a massive leap in respect for Ronnie Van Zant. I know I've talked about him a lot. There's no dis- disgrace to the other members of the band, but I feel like that they were obviously known just because when people talk about Skinner, they always talk about, oh, those guitar solos, and man, they've got great instrumental jams, and I feel like Ronnie, in a way, kind of doesn't get enough credit these days because when Zepp or when Skinner was in their prime, that was what everyone talked about was Ronnie. Yeah, the guitar, it was, he was the star of the show. Interesting. Even in, even in the guitar centric culture of the mid seventies. Mm hmm. Hmm. So, yeah, I think that this is a late career gem that I think can go toe-to-toe with a lot of their best songs. And I think that especially tying it to what Simple Man is about, a unofficial kind of pre-anthem to Ronnie and then having a legitimate one follow it, I think thematically... Uh, makes a lot of sense and so I was glad that because I almost didn't even go this far into the discography for my rankings and I'm glad I did because I'm glad I found this song yeah it's just a great song you got some great guitar um, solos Um, there's there's a really great amount of atmosphere and ambience on this song yeah and the choir and the whole ending section very just like very ambient like you said i would say as far as i've heard i didn't get to get through all their discography but of what i heard i think that this is johnny's best vocal performance wow he really he really belts it on this song but man i'm ready for i'm ready for ronnie's best vocal performance (laughs) so when you were listening to this set you had to have known it was coming. I knew exactly. I knew exactly from the first note of Sweet Home Alabama exactly how this was going to end. Because you can't you can't do anything else. Like, there was a little part in the back of my head saying, ooh, he's going to save this song for a part two. Uh, but, like, <laughs> what else are you going to do? No. I mean, Freebird is probably the most iconic closing song of all time it's just so good there's a reason why like freebird was a meme before memes existed yeah going to another band's performance and then shouting for them to play freebird Mm -hmm. i mean people have been doing that since the 70s that's you could say that it's like one of the oldest memes there is yeah, and to this day, none of them have played it, okay? So if I'm out at, like, if your cover band's playing at Los Cabos and I shout Freebird, I'm wanting to hear some Freebird, okay? Get ready. It's coming. But can anyone 
Bird. Uh, not not in the same way. It's just the way that the the song is played. There's so much personality to every part, mm-hmm. especially especially the final solo. Um, and the, just the way that you know Ronnie's vocals are. It's so dry. The mix is so dry. But that lets his yet there's so know, many layers. Yeah, yeah. There's there's so many things happening, but all of them are just doing a little tidbit and adds to that whole feeling. It's just a one giant progression from you know that first organ chord into the very you know slow choruses, slow uh, verses that kind of carry you until it can't carry you any further. And then it just lets loose. And then the reins are off and it's just, it's a bullfight at that point. So this is a song about, (laughs) this is a song of two halves. So let's talk about the first half first, because there's so much to talk about even just in that. Oh yeah. First off, I'll agree that one of the greatest melodies of the 20th century is that opening slide guitar solo oh yes i mean just totally agree it's it's so it's become so iconic there's so many different moments of the song that are just iconic in of themselves um but man that slide guitar work is just a thing of beauty Mm -hmm. it's it it perfectly um, illustrates this melancholy because that's really what the song is, is that it's it's the inevitability of breaking someone's heart because you know that you can't be there for them. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's, you know, if I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember me? What a, what a sad opening line. Mm-hmm. That's that's another one of those iconic opening lines. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that was that was inspired by so this was actually one of the few songs that was not um written by Ronnie. This was actually written by Alan Collins. Mm. And the genesis of the song actually is from nineteen sixty nine. Oh my goodness. And he this was a, an actual thing that his girlfriend told him. She said, if I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember me? Saying that you you are much more devoted to this band than you are to our relationship. And he he said that he didn't really pay attention to what she said, except for the fact that that could be a great song idea. <laughs> so obviously he was more devoted uh, to the band. Yeah, Um and so he said that, like, for three years, he just kept writing and rewriting the song and perfecting every aspect about it. And yeah, I mean, this is this is one of those songs that you can tell that this was a finely crafted piece that was not just thrown together haphazardly. Yeah. Or in a rush. This is, you can only create a song like Freebird if you have years to work on it. It this this was slaved over every moment. I mm-hmm. mean, that slide guitar during the whole first half of the song it keeps going. Like every 
every note it follows that same chord progression and it never gets old it's like doing something different each time it's like taking out a note here adding a note here it follows that same kind of loop but it it just it's it's slightly different every time mm-hmm. so it was one giant four minute take of almost kind of improvising and that's in a weird way like it sounds improvising and obviously knowing now uh no it was not personality it can't be improvised but that's what it feels like it just feels very it's so natural at this point right natural that's a great way of putting it yeah and and that's how the the solo feels too is that there's some very standard licks in there you know like that that first um opening lick is 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 just blues 101 yeah and but at the same time that. like that's skinner completely owns that lick oh yeah oh my gosh i'm not yeah and i'm not saying that it's like oh it's blues 101 like anyone can do that like no <laughs> no 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 uh the, it, it's it's used so well and that tone on it is just right and the way that it's played, it's played perfectly. It's got the right soul to it. It's got the right swing to it that they pull it off really well. And man, what a great progression of the solo. There's like different parts to this entire solo section where it's not just a backing and, oh, hey, let's play one really long solo over this backing that's exactly the same the entire time. This solo is so, so well composed that it has its own themes and variations. Yeah. You have enough musical ideas in here. Like you've got that. You've got the. And you've got that, uh, you've got the big part at the end, the like, there's just, there's so many moments that they are just able to keep coming back to. And so the, the discussion you have to have is, is this the greatest guitar solo of all time? No, maybe. Mm. Uh... I might argue that it is though. There are some, there's some serious, like, if you're going to say of all time, there's some serious things that we have to talk about, you know, like every other song in history, right? Now, I'm I'm not going to deny that this is one of the greatest guitar solos of all time. I'm not going to deny that this is a serious contender for the greatest guitar solo. And that's, and that's all I'm saying. And, but man, it's going to have, I mean, it's going to really have to jump through some, some hoops. Well, think about what, what's, what are its competitors? You've got Eruption. You've got Eruption. You've got Stairway to Heaven. Right. You've got, um, you've got Hotel California. You've got Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. Um, comfortably numb. Comfortably the, numb. That's what I was thinking of. These, um, I, I think the thing you have to think about with Freebird is, and just think about these other solos. What's what of all of these solos is the most iconic solo? Probably Freebird. 
I would say that as far as importance, I think for, say, Eruption, I would say probably mm-hmm. no other guitar solo changed music more than Eruptions did. But but Freebird, man, it's close. Because you want to talk about a solo that just like completely spearheaded this multi-part guitar that a guitar solo in a way could almost be like a work of art. Then add in the fact add in the fact that you've got two soloists playing. None of these other guitar solos have two guitar solos playing at the same time. By different people. By different people. I mean, Randy Rose played his solos multiple times at the same time, overdubbed, but it was the same guy. Uh These are two people with two different musical, you know, backgrounds. Playing together live in the same room on one take. Play together live, same room, one take, and you can barely, barely tell, and only when they want you to. (laughs) Yep. Everything is so highly choreographed because you can tell exactly together when they want to be apart, harmonizing together at the right moments. Like this is, this is not a, a guitarist going, Oh, I'll just improvise when it gets to the guitar part and see what happens. Yeah. This is every single, I'm sure every single note of this solo was determined years before on this song for about four years before it came out. Worth it. And totally worth it. Um, I just, I think that if, when people think of a guitar solo, like Freebird is what comes to mind. Yeah, the whole, the whole feeling of it too. Mm-hmm. This, this, this is in a way the ultimate guitar solo. You've got you've got the uh the complexity of some of the most complex guitar solos. I mean, again, probably some of those are fairly easy to play, but still it's one of those ones to where to a massive audience, this is a ripping difficult guitar solo. Yet you also have these incredibly memorable moments in them. That even as a normal, everyone can remember the th- three, at least moments, great in this guitar solo that they could hum back to you. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty uh, atypical for guitar solos nowadays. Mm-hmm. I think that when you add all of these things together, even if it isn't the winner, I think you can make a good argument that it deserves to be one of the contenders. Right. I have, I have to let my personal feelings not get in the way of that argument. And I think that I would have to abstain from, (laughs) from voting because I have such a, because I mean, it's a guitar solo, you know, don't let the guitarist have his personal feelings. Uh Cause I mean, I have other solos that I personally like more, right? But, I think when you look at the facts, the fact that this solo became as huge and iconic as it is, I mean, the solo is what builds this entire song. 
Yeah. As as brilliant as that first half is, it doesn't reach where it needs to go without that solo. That solo is is the bird taking flight. Where we have a mournful, sad breakup song in the in the in the beginning, it turns into a glorious uh statement of freedom. Like this is this is excitement. Fly high, free bird. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you what, this this might as well if if we had to change the national anthem, you could probably bet Freebird is one of the most American songs ever made. Uh, when far away. Oh, don't you even. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Fine. I'm I'm on team Freebird for the new national anthem. And then I'm throw okay. in the fact that it's the second most played song on FM Rock Radio. Really? What's the first? Don't say Stairway. It is Stairway. <laughs> oh, that's uh, That's pretty good. But uh, yeah, But about think right. about it though. A song that's 9 minutes long with like over half of it dedicated to a blistering guitar solo has so captured the imagination of the everyday person in America. I just, the more you think about it, the more nonsensical and amazing it becomes. Yeah. This, this song breaks every rule on what a huge American song should be. Yeah. And you want to talk about a catharsis moment. This is nine minutes of pure catharsis. Probably one of the strongest catharsis we've ever had on this show. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that opening progression is a very cathartic progression. Mm-hmm. And then... The that slide it, solo. Right. And the song itself has to resolve itself. It's just... it's it's. There's no better way to end this than the fade out because it's like where do you end (laughs) Mm -hmm. where you end? you just solo into infinity i guess into oblivion into oblivion man and and probably personally like my favorite part of the song is right at the end of the guitar solo when they kind of like kick back into that main um you know beat and then just like it starts soloing again they kind of like rip off into their different solos again it's just like ah I don't know. It's just something about there's like a little bit of attitude there. It just, I mean, the whole song is great, but that part always is just like, man, I want to, I really want to perform this someday. <laughs> but, you know, may, maybe one day I will have enough chops to be able to solo like this for four and a half minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's our set. That's our um, set. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts about Lynard Skynard. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the good. We just finished talking about the six Leonard Skinner songs for this episode. Just as a recap, those songs were Sweet Home Alabama. Give me three steps, that smell, 
Simple Man, The Last Rebel, and Freebird. And the way that you can listen to these songs is that in the description of the episode, there's a link to a Spotify playlist. Please go check out these songs, even if you have heard them before. Hearing them in this order, you just might get something new out of it. Um, It would be a shame if you heard us talk about all these songs and you didn't go check them out. So please go do that. And the cool thing is that you can also hear all the songs from our previous episodes as well. So now it's time to give our final thoughts. So, Grant, you started off at a seven. Where do you stand on Leonard Skinner now? Well, well, I have to qualify that, obviously, right? I started at a seven, loving some of their songs. Absolutely loving some of their songs, but not knowing anything about them. Now I'm at a seven, loving their songs and knowing their history and feeling like I'm a, like I'm a Skinner historian. You know, maybe, maybe I don't know everything. Obviously, we have to distill it down for a, you know, two and a half, I guess, three hours now podcast. Um, but yeah, so I I don't think I can move just because I knew four out of six of these songs pretty well um, and love them, right? Love Sweet Home Alabama, love Freebird, obviously love Freebird. Um, so I don't, I don't know from the musical side if I learned anything, but obviously I loved hearing the stories, however tragic and morbid they may be. It's always like good to learn rock history and, and things like that. It's always fun to kind of be informed about stuff like that. And so that's, that's some of the, uh, that's some of the stuff that I love to hear on the podcast is the history and the different, how, you know, the band's personal life play into the songs and, all of that context really makes you appreciate the music a little bit better. Um, I'd have to say, obviously, my favorite one's Freebird. You can't can't pick another. Well, I guess you could if you're if you're an Alabaman, then I'll I'll give you a pass if you're from Alabama. But Alabamian, Alabaman, is it not Alabamian? No, I was saying that to be dumb. Oh, yeah, Lyonyard, Skyonyard. <laughs> say that five times fast yeah sweet home person from alabama uh if you're from alabama i'll give you a pass every single other person on the face of the planet your favorite song better be free bird or i'm coming for you actually no you're entitled <laughs> to your own opinion but please come on listen to these songs they're really good you just listen to us talk about them for three hours so do yourselves a favor check out some good music that's what it's all about that's my final thought. All right. Um, so for me, learning about story has increased how I feel about their songs. Um, I don't think it's enough to push me up towards an eight because just naturally, once once I get to an eight, it has to start inspiring me in some way. And Leonard Skinner's music is just not going to be the, probably the kind of music that's going to inspire me. But I think that my level of sevenness is much stronger. Like I would have put myself at a low seven. I'm now at a very high seven. Um, just learning about really learning so much and appreciating Ronnie Van Zant and what he brought to the band. He was not just the singer. 
that he was such a incredible creative force in the band. Um, just seeing their story about how they rose and fell and have somehow since then risen again. Uh, it's, it is very inspiring. It's very, you can, I feel like I can see the soul of Skinner now. And that's a really cool thing to be able to find. But I mean, how can you go against Freebird? It's kind of like a national crime not to. In a way, it's the easy, predictable choice, but that's because it's the right choice. Mm-hmm. I, I just I don't know how you cannot get a thrill from it every time you hear it. Um, as far as my ranking, I did a Leonard Skinner ranked playlist. I didn't get to go through their entire discography. Uh, the album The Last Rebel was as far as I had gotten. That was still quite a bit of music. Mm-hmm. Um, the Last Rebel I have at number eight. Give Me Three Steps I put at number seven. Simple Man at number five. That Smell at number four. Sweet Home Alabama at number two. And Freebird at number one. Wow. Man, let me tell you, I'm excited to listen to some more Skinner. I'm feeling like there's some debut album maybe some street survivors in my future here's the thing i would recommend you go listen to street survivors okay because you're gonna hear a lot of stuff you've already heard on the first record and again the the deep cuts aren't as great they're okay but i think that you'll find more that you haven't heard and be pleasantly surprised by Street Survivors. Just a just a better overall listening experience, I guess. Gosh dang, but man, just that first album has when you when you add up the amount of greatness that's on it, it kind of almost tips the point. But again, you've heard all those moments before. I just think you'll find more exciting new things that you haven't heard before on Street Survivors. All right, then I will I'll focus my efforts accordingly. Uh, Harry really was into Skinnerd, Not as much as some of the other bands we've done, but he really loved Give Me Three Steps. Mm. That was the song. I mean, he would just be over in his play area, and I'd just hear, Give me three steps, give me three steps, Mr. Give me three steps. And I would just laugh. And yep. also, every time that I played him Freebird, when it opened, he would say, is this Fix You by Coldplay? What? Because that song also starts off with an organ. Oh. Maybe even the same chord. Oh, let me Don't quote to- me on that, though. You're going to have to make me listen to it now. Oh, no. Um, okay. That would be a blessing to you, because it's a great song. Well, I, I've heard it before. Don't worry. Don't worry. Um. yeah so that's our episode thank you guys so much for listening um, if you enjoyed please make sure that you hit that subscribe button we have new episodes every Monday at midnight next week we're going to be um, moving a bit more into modern times into some alternative but a band that um, that I do really like and and using this as an opportunity to get to know their discography a little more. So um, make sure that you tune in next week for that. And uh, make sure you contact us 
and check us out on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. That's the best way to let us know what episodes you would like for us to do. Once again, I want to give a, a big shout out to uh, Colin Wood 15 for um, asking us to do a Skinnerd episode. We thank you so much for uh, for letting us know and for continuing to listen to us. If you would like to have your favorite artist on an episode, just let us know on Instagram and on Facebook. And there's two links in the description of the episode. One of them takes you to a Spotify playlist. Like I said earlier, you can listen to these and all the other songs on our other episodes. But the other link takes you to our Patreon page where we will be uh, talking about Leonard Skinner's six worst songs. And boy, do we have some interesting songs there. Are they bad? Are they good? Guess you'll have to find out. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, the bad to... music is really what sells you on the band. So yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to our patrons joining us. Hopefully we'll see some of you non-patrons there soon. Yeah, maybe, and don't maybe. forget that we're going to have a, our end-of-year tournament oh, yeah. um, as our special Patreon segment. Uh, when we do our end of 2021 episode so you'll really want to make sure you tune in for that yeah and uh, that's it I'm Lucas I am Grant keep on listening to good music good music